As I said, I pre-apologize for my voice. <clears throat> it might get better as I talk more. Uh, I tried to talk all the way here to church, and Lisa had to endure it, and it didn't get any better. But uh, we have our handout for the morning. The first page is the text that we're in, and then the subsequent page is the is a chart that we'll be referring to, as well as a few other things. <clears throat> first Corinthians 13. I gave you much of my preamble on this last week. Uh, trying to set the stage for this text. There's no question that this is one of the most, if not the most famous passage in all of Scripture because it's read at every wedding. It's um, on every macrame pillow and uh, you know, bookmarks. I actually looked up on Etsy for 1 Corinthians 13 bookmarks and there were approximately 400 of them to choose from. Um, I didn't want to gift them to you. I would just point you there if you really want to buy them. <clears throat> we do tend to put this passage on a pedestal and pull it out of its context. In other contexts, it's a beautiful passage. There's no question. It's one of the most beautifully formulated and crafted sections of all the Bible. Uh, Paul's uh, literary and poetry and just the beauty of the language is here. But in its context, it's not a sentimental chapter. This isn't something to make you feel good. It's intended to prick your soul. It's intended to contrast what your life is like versus what scripture says it should be. And, <clears throat> excuse me, could I get some water? I think that might help me uh, not annoy you for an hour. <clears throat> Thank you. So we turn to the passage itself. Now, it starts out with the if I. Now, if you'll notice, if I is used five times in the first three verses. Let's look at it or circle it on your page if you want. You have if I speak, verse 2, if I have, and other part of verse 2, if I have, verse 3, if I give, and verse 3b, if I deliver. It's this <clears throat> possibility. Thank you. Of course not, um, but we'll keep at it. Anytime you see um, phrases like that repeated, it's important to circle them because it helps understand the structure of the mindset of the author. But he starts with, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, He's just been speak, talking about tongues and prophecy. And in chapter 14, it's the entire topic of chapter 14, is tongues and prophecy. So he introduces this lovely passage addressing the topic at hand. <clears throat> now, when he talks of the tongues of men, we understand what that would be, you know, French, English, German, 
Thai, whatever, you know, the various languages of people. Yes, I don't think it'll help because I'll be clicking it in my, <laughs> in my mouth the whole time. Thank you, though. I appreciate that. <clears throat> How about say, I'm speaking in the tongues of a cold, and you have to interpret it. <laughs> but when he says the tongues of angels, everyone stops because it's never addressed or defined. Not here, nor anywhere else. So some will say, well, obviously, Paul is talking about a prayer language. That tongues is a form of angelic speak. That only someone with a gift of interpretation can understand. Well, that's one interpretation. I'm not sure that's what Paul is writing here. Because it wouldn't fit the rest of the paragraph. Um, it's hyperbole. It's, uh, he's exaggerating. He says, you know, if you speak eloquently, or you speak like an angel, and don't have love, you're just a gong, gong or a symbol. Because he says later, if you have all the prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries, if you have faith that can move a mountain, and you have not love. You see? If you put the emphasis correctly, it changes how, what Paul is trying to say. He's not establishing a doctrine. If he were establishing a doctrine, he probably would have stopped and said, and this is what I mean by that. He's preaching. He's teaching. Now granted, it's intentional. It is possible, and I'm not going to discount those that interpret it that way as being an angelic uh, prayer language. And it's not to say tongues cannot be a prayer language, but what I'm saying is I'm not sure that's what Paul's addressing here. It could be, but it doesn't seem to fit. His point is, is that if you don't have love and you have all of these wonderful gifts, it's a waste. It's meaningless. You can be the most eloquent speaker in the world. You can convince thousands to follow you and they will give you a name of Jim Jones or a name of Adolf Hitler or a name of Pol Pot. You can be just this amazing speaker but if you don't love, it's nothing. And he says you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, I decided to look that up. Was there some sort of cultural uh, thing he was referring to? And the answer is yes. Apparently, in old Corinth, which was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, old Corinth was famous across the empire for brass and bronze work. So when they rebuilt the city in 44 BC, Augustus Caesar said, rebuild it. The brass trade resumed, and many wealthy Romans collected Corinthian bronzes. They became collectibles, kind of like Hummels. Well, maybe not. Um, but they were considered rare pieces. So Kenneth Bailey, who has wrote this book called Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes, 
a cultural study of 1 Corinthians. Yeah, it's light reading. It's actually a cure for insomnia, if you want. Uh, but he has a section in here on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. <clears throat> in Aleppo, Syria, this is current, this is like 1980. In Aleppo, Syria, which has now been totally destroyed by ISIS and everything else, but anyway, when he was writing about this, a large brass maker's market is still functioning in the center of the city. There, along both sides of a narrow street, one can visit rows of small shops, each about two meters by three meters in size. So just, just a second. That's six by nine. That's barely the size of a bed. A queen-size bed, maybe. So, each shop, two meters by three meters in size, seated in the street, each craftsman makes and sells his own products. While lecturing there in the 80s, I was interested in visiting this famous market and was obliged to ask for directions as I trudged eagerly down a narrow pedestrian street in the old city. But as soon as I approached from a distance of about a half a kilometer, I only needed to follow the racket. On arrival, I found myself in the middle of more than 200 craftsmen <coughs> hammering slabs of copper or brass into cooking pots, drinking vessels, <coughs> cheese-making ladles and the like. Even though all of this craftsmanship was taking place in the open air, the noise was deafening. To talk to any of the skilled workmen, I was obliged to bend down, place my lips within two inches of the artisan's ear, and shout at the top of my voice. The noise level was ear-splitting. As tent makers, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla would have needed to be present in the marketplace in order to pursue their trade. Thus, while they're making tents, their endured the high-pitched racket of banging brass would have been a common experience for all Corinthian sellers. So when Paul says, if you have all the eloquence in the world and can speak wonderfully and convince hundreds with the beauty of your voice, you could even speak like an angel. And if you don't have love, well, come visit my workplace and we won't be able to hear you because you'll be just noise. And there's nothing beautiful about cacophonous metal clanging. Nothing. I mean, you know, some modern symphony writers try to make it into music, but it's not beautiful. It's an acquired taste, let's put it that way. Um, Growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, and really getting into uh, rock music, uh, my dad, who was very conservative, um, used to call my music a racket. I mean, he was actually, one point told me he was grateful he was somewhat deaf in his, in his right ear, and when he was driving, I could turn on the radio as loud as I wanted and he didn't have to hear it. <laughs> and, 
And if you think about, you know, how music has evolved, when our country was founded, <coughs> 1776, who was the number one music artist in the world? It wasn't uh, Kelly Clarkson. It wasn't Barbara Streisand. An idea? Mozart. You know, it's like, oh, interesting. So they were listening to Mozart. Well, well maybe not on a CD, but uh, that music was everywhere. And it was that era of music. In, and you kind of, we kind of forget the context of when music was developed and how it has changed over the years. But are we just noise? Of course not. We hope not. And if I have all, if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries <clears throat> and have all knowledge, and if I have <clears throat> faith to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, now wouldn't that, when you think about that for a second, that's admirable. Think of someone, maybe even in the Corinthian church, who was wealthy and said, I know how to get to God. I know how to get to heaven. I'll give away everything I have and give it to the poor and show and prove that I am this wonderful Christian person. And Paul says, well, you could give it all away. You don't have love when you did it. If you're doing it for yourself, it's meaningless. And then, he says, if I have delivered up my body to be burned and not have love. <clears throat> now that's where some writers pull up and say that he's talking about the spiritual gift of martyrdom. I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but that is what he's talking about, to give up your body to be burned. What I did not know until I started digging into this is that at this time when Paul was alive, in Athens, where he had just been. Remember? He went from Athens to Corinth. He had done the, the, uh, the debates on Mars Hill in Athens, saw the cacophony of gods in the marketplace all throughout the city. In that city, at that time, and it's referred to by Strabo in his writings, who died in 24 AD, it's referred to by Plutarch, who died in 120 A.D. So we're not making this up historically. In the Athens marketplace was a monument to a famous Indian, as in the country of India. The Indian's tomb has an inscription that reads, Zaman, Zamano Chegas, that's the name, Zamano Chegas, an Indian, native of Barbosa, having immortalized himself according to the custom of his country, here lies. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, according to Strabo, it blew the Greeks away. The guy immolated himself in the Athens marketplace. 
And Strabo writes, well, why? Well, he was either moved by ambition, old age, or he just wanted to impress Caesar Augustus. But he burned himself alive in the marketplace, and they built a monument to him for this self-sacrifice to his gods and according to their traditions. And so you have an Indian, not a Greek, an Indian, not an African, an Indian memorialized in Athens along with all the other gods. So when, when it says, uh, Strabo wrote, he, he, uh, either what, we're trying to impress Caesar Augustus, with a smile he leapt into the pyre. Now, some of us will remember times during uh, the 60s, Vietnam War, and even more recently, but you would have pictures of various Buddhist monks who would light themselves on fire as they form a protest uh, for whatever reason. And you look at that and you're just horrified that someone would do that. Well, Paul's trying to make a point. Even if you did that, and did it in the name of Jesus, and you did it without love, it's meaningless. So Paul, in this passage, is actually referring to something that maybe was well known among among the people of Corinth. They all knew about this guy. It was talked about. The writings are, are writing about it. That's quite extraordinary. So, ooh, we have a new eraser. Ooh, idea paint. I don't know if that, oh, it actually works. Either they stole all the other erasers or they're trying to modernize us. <laughs> uh, Alistair Begg did this exercise and has been picked up by hundreds of others because his sermon series on this passage was from 1993 and he's not preached on it since so it's kind of interesting to hear his illustrations and his illusions and kind of go hmm, that was a long time ago how come it sounds like it's today anyway Let's, let's take a number, like one billion. That's a big number. But let's remove this. And what are we left with? Nothing. One digit changes something from a billion to nothing. That's what he's trying to say. You gain nothing, I am nothing, you are nothing. When I was thinking about this last night, it dawned on me, I went, wait, the number zero didn't exist in Paul's day. There was no zero in math. The concept of nothingness philosophically is there. You know, there was that, there was always the discussion and he knew what it meant to not have anything, but it did not have a numeral associated with it. Um, in the history of mathematics, you can actually go back. The Mayans had a zero in 3 BC. Um, there are apparently some um, Indian uh, writings in 5 BC. The, um, 
Babylonian. They, they would use a double mark to, to have something in between. But it didn't necessarily have a value. It was just simply a placeholder. Um, <clears throat> but it really didn't reach Europe until the 12th century AD, mathematically. Isn't that something? I mean, you think, oh, this is, yeah, we've always had the zero. No, we haven't. And if you recall, when we were talking about, in uh, Thessalonians, we were talking about the Antichrist, and we had the guy who made the prediction that the Lord was coming back in 1988, and he was wrong. So we wrote a sequel, mm -hmm. that the Lord was coming back in 1989, because he realized he forgot the year zero in his calculations. The year between 1 BC and the year 1 AD, that there had to be a year zero. Well, technically there wasn't a year zero. You know, there's, no in, there's no year that was a nothing year. It's just you had here and then you have there, the birth of Christ, one side or the other. So for Paul, philosophically, to talk about zero or nothingness is important, but it has such an interesting impact for us in our modern day because we think of zero in its mathematical form. It's the first thing that comes to our mind. Because you notice there is not a Greek word that is the word zero. It didn't exist. You have the word nothing. So I don't want to get into that too much. It just stopped me for a second and went, wait, that's really fascinating how it's a modern concept. <clears throat> now notice that Paul is not saying that love is a substitute for the spiritual gifts. But the seeking of love is greater than the seeking of gifts. So whatever gift you have, if you use it with love, it will have its original meaning. But if you seek after a gift and not seek after love, then it's a, a, a useless pursuit. John MacArthur put it this way. Paul stops in the middle of all this and says, let me talk to you about love. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter any difference, how many talents you have. It's irrelevant what your gifts are. It's inconsequential how seemingly great you are. Your popularity is unimportant, absolutely unimportant. It doesn't matter how much power you have over other people. If you're not motivated and guided by the reality of self-sacrificing, caring, serving love, you are a zero spiritually. A zero, not even a one. You're a zero. You don't matter. You make no contribution. If love is not the major contribution of your life, you make no contribution. There's no other way around this. This statement is so very clear. Paul is trying to say, you can be as wonderful as you like, but if you're motivated in the wrong way and you come at it for the wrong direction, it's, you're very human and it's not God. <clears throat> Last week, as part of the preamble, I went through the various Greek words for love. And we even talked about, I think it was six others that are in the Bible that are, were Greek words for love. 
but it didn't dawn again, again until last night that eros is never used in the New Testament anywhere. You find it in the Greek Old Testament, primarily in Song of Solomon, for good reason, but eros as being the sexual love or the intimacy of love between man and woman. This commentator wrote this. He said, it's significant that in the writing of the New Testament, the Spirit of God seemed to forbid the use of the word eros. It's freely used in the writings of the Greek poets and the philosophers, but never once found in the New Testament. This word representing the love between the sexes has been so abused, so degraded by the Greeks, that God, as it were, stood over his book and said to those who are writing, don't put that word in there. It's too capable of being utterly misunderstood. I don't want the word in my book, for so many vile things have been linked with it. It had become so misused that it wasn't even right to think of it as expressing the true love of a chaste wife and a good husband in Ephesians. Fascinating. And you have to realize that the use, because we, we, we talked a little bit about it, but the use of the word agape, that self-giving, self-sacrificing um, love, was so much more powerful that it made all the others look secondary and um, subsets of the larger and transform the meaning of the word love for us as believers. Well, <clears throat> now we get into the famous part of the passage. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So I went back into my notes, <clears throat> and I found the... Uh, section from two and a half years ago when we studied love as part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting. I would teach that, that section completely different today. I actually read through it all and went, I'm not going to use any of it this week. It's amazing how you can come back to the Scripture, <coughs> the same topic, the same word, and you find new things and either a greater understanding or a, a uh, more full understanding of a word or a concept. <coughs> the problem with the word love is it's just so common. We just overuse it. I mean, for goodness sake, it describes a score in tennis. <laughs> Fifteen love. What? I have still yet to figure out how that ever happened. <clears throat> Maybe they're just trying to be nice to their opponent. Haha, <laughs> I got one, but I love you. Oh, 15 love, but why not one love or two love? I just don't get it. Well, it's the British. Sorry for any of you who are British who are listening to this, but too bad. We're confused. 
The most fascinating little tidbit I found when looking through this is that <clears throat> all of the words that describe love in these four verses are verbs in the Greek. None of them are adjectives. In English, we have translated them as adjectives. Love is patient, means patience describes love. No. In actuality, it should be translated, love acts patiently. Or love acts kindly. It's a verb. It's a movement. Love is an action. It's not passive. Love is defined by its action. When we say God is love, well, what does that mean? Well, that means if you want to understand love, you need to understand God. If you understand God, you understand love. If you understand love, you understand God. But love is <clears throat> action. What did God do for us? He sent his son to die for our sins, to give us hope and redemption, rather than eternal condemnation. So you have, uh, I think it's 15. I'm, I couldn't get the count right. I, I looked at different ways. I think there's 15 verbs in these verses. 15. None of them are adjectives in the Greek. That's astounding to me. And our English, none of our English translations reflect it properly. Think about it this way. If we were to describe the Corinthian church as Paul was in the first 12 chapters, they were impatient, discontent, envious, <clears throat> puffed up, selfish, <clears throat> indecorous, mindful, unmindful of the feelings or interests of others, suspicious, resentful, and censorious. That's Charles, I'm quoting Charles Hodge there. They were all the opposites. They were seriously in trouble people. And so Paul starts writing and he starts countering everything of what they were with simple verbs. Patient, kind, envy, boast, arrogant, rude, all these negatives. Uh, <clears throat> the word for kind, for example. In the Greek is krestos, C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. And Tertullian, in his writing, said that some people called those who were believers in Jesus, Christianis. Not Christianis. See the difference? One word, one letter changes it from Christ to kind. 
It was the testimony of the people that in Tertullian's day, saying, this is how they're describing us. Wow. Now don't we have the hymn we like to sing? For they know we are Christians by our love, by our love. For they know we are Christians by our love. That's where it comes from. The love of the people, not only for each other, but for others. <clears throat> the great theologian Mark Twain, oh, sorry. <clears throat> I should say the great agnostic Mark Twain wrote, Kindness is a language the deaf can hear and the blind can read. It's a brilliant way of describing it. Just, just that simple word of kindness. I mean, Titus chapter 3. Um, let me just read it. I'll find it here. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the ultimate love. It's what He did for us. So you go through them. I, we, we could spend forever and go through each one of these various uh, verbs. I just want to pick a couple of them out just for the uh, sake of our discussion. Um, <clears throat> it's not arrogant or rude. Well, there's a wonderful story about John Wesley. If you remember, he would travel from town to town, <clears throat> either on horseback or by, by a stagecoach or whatever it was. And he, <clears throat> I'm really sorry about my voice. It's just, it's bothering me probably just as much as it is as you. John Wesley once had a traveling companion who was an officer, army officer, very intelligent and agreeable in conversation with one serious drawback, his profanity. So when they changed from one wagon to another, Wesley took the officer aside and after expressing his pleasure of his company and the enjoyable nature of the conversation, he said, I have one favor to ask of you. And the young officer replied, I would take great pleasure in obliging your favor, for I know you would not ask anything that would be unreasonable. John Wesley said, okay, we will be traveling together for some distance from this point forward. And should I forget myself and swear, would you please reprove me? <laughs> the officer immediately saw what he was trying to say. He didn't confront the man saying, your, your swearing offends me. He simply said, if I do it, please let me know. And, you know, tell me to stop. <laughs> the officer said later, none but Mr. Wesley could have conceived a reproof in such a brilliant manner. Uh, that's a great story. 
It says here, does not insist on its own way, says it's not irritable. Now the King James Version created a problem here because it added a word in the English language. In the King James, it says it is not easily provoked. So if you look in your King James Bible, it will say it is not easily provoked. The word easily is not in the Bible. It's not in the Greek. They added it. And the word provoke is correct. I mean, it's the Greek word paroxunatai, from which we get our word paroxysm, like a fit of coughing or a, a, a outburst of rage or some sort of an attack. But there are those who theorize that the translators of the the King James Bible put in the word easily provoked because King James I was a very uh, hot-headed, easily angered man. And they were using this to preach to him. (laughs) None of the other translations since then used the word easily at all. It's not there. <clears throat> so it's not irritable or resentful. Uh, one guy set aside, he goes, the problem with resentment is that sometimes people will tend to keep score. You will see this in office politics in particular. You do me wrong, what they say is, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times. Well, as my northern Jersey Shore guys would say, we's going to have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So one fellow was talking to his pastor and counseling. He says, you know, whenever I get an argument with my spouse, we get historical. And the pastor says, no, you mean hysterical? He says, no, we get historical. We go back in history of everything we've ever done wrong to each other in our entire marriage, and we bring it all out. And he goes, well, there's your problem. You're keeping score. That's not love. Love does not keep score. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, if you look at your chart on the second page of your handout, I don't want to gloss over this because I spent some time putting it together. But I took the fruit of the Spirit on the left-hand column and took the characteristics of love in the right-hand column out of 1 Corinthians 13, And the parallels are astounding. If you wish, I would recommend maybe even make it a meditation or something you do in your own quiet time this week. But just look at this. It's a direct parallel between the two. And remember, Galatians was written first. Then came Thessalonians. Then comes the Corinthians. And there's about... Mm, four years difference. It's not to say Paul didn't write other times in between. He probably did. We just don't have them. 
But in God's providence, this is what we, this is what we have. So instead of just reiterating the fruit of the Spirit, which is a different topic, he's now in the context of talking about the gifts of the Spirit, then brings in love as the core of all of the usage of the spiritual gifts, and he comes down and characteristically describes everything that's in the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know if this was his intent. It might have been. It might have just been in the back of his head, or it's probably better to give credit where credit's due. It was inspired by God. But isn't this amazing? And you can go through many of these. For example, love does not insist in his own way. If you want to make a note, put chapter 10, verse 24, and you'll find in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, where they were insisting on their own way. You go down under uh, is not rude, which is the next to last uh, one. In the Corinthians, they tolerated horrible behavior. They just let it happen. That's in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, 11, 4, and 11, 22. Does not envy. 1 Corinthians 3, 3 says they were full of jealousy and strife. Or boastful. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. They were boasting. And he calls them on it. It's not arrogant. 1 Corinthians 4, 18 and 19 and 1 Corinthians 5, 2. They were arrogant and he calls them out. And so then when he gets into this passage about love, he's already been talking to him about it. And he says, here is a better way. Remember how this whole passage starts? Let me show you a more excellent way. And this is it. Underneath that, I had actually earlier in my uh, study had been thinking, I wonder what it would be. It would be a fun exercise to do the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. What would that look like? And I thought, ah, that would be so much work. It would be hard to do. And then I came across Jared Wilson, who I was his agent for a few number of years, a very, very well-known author. Um, but he wrote a blog called 1 Corinthians 13 Reversed. Well, I changed the 1 Corinthians from the dark side. Um, he used the opposite of love in his version as being hate. And I thought, you know, the word hate now has different connotations in our culture. We use it as a pejorative in arguing, saying you're, you're, it's hate speech. Well, that phraseology really hasn't come into our language for the last half decade or so. And so I thought, really, what's another way of doing it? And I thought, well, how about unloving? And so I rewrote it, re, you know, changed some of his grammar and things like that, but he gets the credit for the original idea that if we're looking at this from the opposite side, impatience and unkindness is unloving. Unloving is envious and egocentric. Unloving is arrogant and rude. Unloving insists on its own way. Unloving is irritable and resentful. 
Unloving celebrates sin and mocks what is true. Unloving is whiny and thin-skinned, thoroughly skeptical, always pessimistic, and I have a typo, but, and walks away when things get hard. Correct my own copy here. Good grief, how did I let that get through? Well, as I want to say in my industry, I am the world's worst porf reader. <laughs> I'm terrible at my proofing my own stuff. But then the last phrase, but being unloving can end. And that's where hope comes in. So, Jen Wilkin has this wonderful book called No One Like Him. If you've not seen it or read it or heard of it, she's a wonderful writer. And the subtitle is Ten Ways God is Different from Us. And in pages 89 to 91, I'm going to quote some sections from it here where she addresses 1 Corinthians 13. But she does it in an interesting way. She says, 1 Corinthians 13 teaches always and never. I mean, think about the language here. Love bears all things. It's always able to do that. It believes all things. It's always able to do that. It hopes all things. It's always able to do that. It endures all things. Always. And then the next words is, but love never. So you have always and never. Love never fails. Or in the ESV, love never ends. The Greek is actually closer to the word failing than the word ending. But love never fails. She writes this. This chapter describes an always and never love. The kind of love that can be attributed only to a God of infinite sameness. It does not describe human love, but the love for which all human hearts long, the always and never love of God. Only God can say with utter truthfulness that his love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Only God can rightly say that his love never fails. You see, idolatry takes hold of you and me when we depend on a human relationship, when we depend on a circumstance, or we depend on a possession to never leave us or forsake us, but to always remain. Isn't that interesting? Taking it right out of the vows of a wedding. Idolatry takes hold of us when we believe that a difficult relationship will never change when we believe that it will always be hopeless or wounding or sorrowful. But here's the truth that topples these idols. Every circumstance you encounter will change except the circumstance of your forgiveness. Every possession you own will pass away except the pearl of your salvation. Every relationship you enter into will waver except your adoption by your Heavenly Father. And I'm quoting her. As I write, this is 2015, 
As I write, I'm at the end of a week full of historic headline news. Issues of race, gender, sexuality, religion, and politics have all erupted into chaos at the same time. Wait, that was five years ago. It sounds like last week. It hasn't changed. Leaders have fallen. Ah. Laws have been overturned. Huh. Citizens have practiced civil disobedience. Oh, that was on the news. Terrorism has inscribed its message in blood across three continents. <clears throat> and social media wants desperately to convince me that this time it's serious. <laughs> and that the sky is really falling. I remember other weeks like this, the anxiety and the alarm that they bred in me, the gut-gripping fear. But this week, I'm in a different place, and it cannot be by accident. The rage of the nations can be navigated only by keeping a fixed point in view that the Lord God is seated on His throne. That fixed point has been my meditation this week and the effect it has had on my composure in the face of change and upheaval has taken me by surprise. The always and never of my unchanging God are particularly practical to me and particularly precious. There is no rock but the rock of salvation. No human heart is so hard he cannot soften it, not even yours. Turn loose of the idolatry of your always and nevers. Those words are only true of God. Ask him to sustain you through the ever-changing moments of this life. <coughs> Ask him to change what you have believed to be beyond the power of his grace to alter. Our God of infinite sameness is a rock when all of around us is shifting sand and we cry, Psalm 61 verse 2, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have always been my refuge. That, my friends, is the always and never of love. As I said last week, this love chapter is a little bit like the Sermon on the Mount or some of these other extraordinary lofty passages of Scripture. You read it and went, there's no way. Well, exactly. Mm -hmm. There is no way. You cannot wake up and say, I'm going to be very loving today. <laughs> you know, it's going to last until you get to a stoplight, red lights, blast through person. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait, I need to follow them and pray for them while I call on the police and let them know that this guy's in danger. Anyway, no, but seriously, we are that fragile. There's no amount of will. There can be awareness. That's one thing. But we can't just grit our teeth and love everything and everybody. That's not the point. It's just not going to happen. Gee, I love you. Oh. you know. That's not, that's clanging gongs and sounding cymbals. That's nothingness that's being burnt on a pyre. I'm going to be a martyr. I'm, I'm just going to take it. Oh, please. You're just doing this for yourself. 
only God, only God is love. If we were to do something, be interesting, to take the word love out of these verses and put the word Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, rude, does not insist on his own way, is not irritable, resentful, resentful, etc. (coughs) And that's how we should and can live. Obviously, there's more to the passage. Um, To me, I I mean, I started to study this, and I, I was just going, the rest of the passage from the middle of verse 8 all the way through 13 is so beautiful, I can't add to it. I literally stopped and I said, I can't add to this. Prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Remember, this was the topic that started the whole thing. Knowledge, it's going to pass away. You will have no meaning. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, probably referring to the second coming of Christ, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. And remember that mirrors were not the mirrors we have today. They were polished rocks or still ponds, or uh, polished brass, or copper. The mirror that we have today of a piece of glass with silver film behind it is 1835. That was when it was invented. Just, you could not see in a mirror clearly, period. So when he refers to it, he says, anybody who holds up a mirror, they're kind of going, is that really me? Wow, Can't, can't really tell. Because he says, now we see in a mirror dimly. When we see that phrase and we think of the mirror in our bathroom, it's far too clear what we're looking at. (laughs) We wish it would be somewhat steamed over or something because then it looks better. But he says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but face to face, I know in part, then I will know fully, even if I was fully known. Faith, hope, and love abide. They're all wonderful things. But the greatest is love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. For this extraordinary passage you've given to us. So let us meditate on regularly. But let us not make it so common that it becomes cliched. That this is a a spiritual call to aspire to only through your power. That if we are ever able to exhibit your love, it's not us that's doing. We cannot take credit when we do what is right. We can only say, thank you, Lord, for giving me the grace. Because without you, I am nothing. In Jesus' name, amen.